and welcome to the Under Pressure Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Matt Atlas, and joining me, as he always does, is Jake Barker in the week where footy clubs have been able to resume footy training with AFL in the foreseeable future. How's it going, Jake? Yeah, going well, actually, this week, Matt. Been doing a, been doing a few things sport-related, so, yeah, been watching a bit, been, been doing a bit of fitness, you know, Trying to get, trying to keep fit. What about yourself? Um, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to say I've been lazy. Let's just go with that. I've been a, a bit under the weather, so I've been a little bit restricted in what I can um, do. So I, I, I've been keeping track of what's going on in social media, but unfortunately, that's about it for me at the moment. Ah, well, that's all right. Got time. Got time to got time to kick things along. Don't worry. Yeah. You're all good. But as I said in the uh, intro, round two, yes, round two, will commence on June 11 for the AFL in what is probably the largest gap between in-season rounds in the history of the AFL. A lot of diehard AFL fans are dying to see their team play. Even Even the Gold Coast Sun supporters are looking forward to this. Oh, I know I am as I know I'm pretty keen to to see the fixtures and see the see when and where people are going to be playing and who's going to be playing and how yeah, how this whole, whole thing works really. Yeah, so we so we know it'll start on uh, June 11 on a Thursday night with uh, Richmond and Collingwood, which was always scheduled for round two, but it doesn't actually get any bigger than beginning the season with those two teams both genuine top four teams, both in the premiership window and the two largest clubs in Victoria. Doesn't get any better than that. Oh, no, completely. Yeah, 100%. Like, it's kind, it's kind of worked out really well, I think, for the AFL beginning, restarting the season, I should say, with the uh, arguably two of the biggest clubs in the AFL. So it's worked out pretty well, even though, even though it's been a while since we've played round one. But... Should be good. I was a bit surprised that I thought there was a sneaky opportunity for a sort of like a big freeze six opening game between Collingwood and Melbourne. I thought that would have been great for the the big freeze and the Neil Danaher storyline. But that'll probably be a week or two later, which is something for all footy fans to look forward to. But Collingwood Richmond, I, I think. With whichever option they went out of those two, the AFL was going to make the correct decision, and oh, and it was. I mean, yeah, I think I think you're right. I think the they they have made the right decision, though. Or though Melbourne and Collingwood and the big freeze would have been a great way to kick things off. I think Collingwood Richmond's not not the worst way to uh, restart the season. I don't think even not though, at all. Yeah, that's it. So. Yeah, so there's been a few few things come out as of late from uh, for the restarting of the uh, for the season. So this this past Monday, the uh, the players have so the 18th of May have started uh, training. So they're back back on the park, albeit with no contact though. So the first week is without contact and um, uh, whatnot, and then following week, so starting the 25th, they'll be able to resume contract training like uh, in-game stuff and tackling and different things like that as well. So I should mention that all players had to be 
had to have a test before doing all this. So um, hopefully all those tests come back positive. And if, uh, if they don't, we'd, that'll be fingers crossed that that doesn't happen, but hopefully uh, it'll continue forward. So far, all tests have come back positives, positive. The one thing that caught my eye during the week with um, coronavirus is it, it said that um, single players are no longer allowed to have casual hookups. That was the headline that caught my week and a few of the single boys were, or men, were a bit down by that information. I thought that was a very interesting thing to sort of to come out of all places of Essendon was the team that was associated with that story. Um, but um, contact training is also to return next week on Monday the 25th of May, which is a critical moment for the competition. I remember listening to the Melbourne Storm saying that the contract uh, contact, train, contact training was so important that they would have driven to Aubrey for a second week just to get that training in, even if they weren't allowed to do it at Melbourne Olympic Park. So it was, it's such a key aspect of the training regime. So it's a big week next week as well for the AFL. Yeah. Yeah, no, 100%. Yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the first time they're coming back, first time people are going to be in contact with each other. So it is a big moment. So hopefully all that, all that pays off next week and all things go well that we can uh, get this thing started on June 11, which would be good fun. Uh, good fun, I, uh, I hope. So you were going to say something, Matt? Uh, no, no, I was, you, you can say something if you like. <laughs> <laughs> wow, we haven't done this for a while, but that's all right. No worries. So, uh, Zoom, it's very hard to sort of get the vibe of your partner on Zoom. It's just got that little second of delay. It just is a little bit painful sometimes. Yeah, no, I completely agree. So please forgive us. Please forgive us for that. Um, so anyway, um, the AFL have said that the, fix, the fixture for the AFL will be released in four to six week blocks. So, yeah, so they'll do the first month and a half and then work from that and then um, they'll go from that point in time and then see what, see what players are doing, see what clubs are, how clubs are dealing with um, the hubs and, and whatnot. So I think, I think that's, a, that's a good idea rather than just blocking out the whole, whole fixture and in one whole, whole chunk. So it breaks it down a little bit. Gives the fans something to look forward to as well, I guess, after not having AFL for a while. So little things like when's the next fixture coming out could be could be good as well. So I think that's that's a good uh, decision by uh, Gill and Gill and the team. I think, and it gives them a little bit of flexibility uh, for different options that could happen with hopefully um, Clay being able to resume back in South Australia for the South Australian clubs. Also, a few of the Victorian clubs, I know Nathan Buckley has said it is, he's prepared to travel a little bit more this time to sort of even out the competition. And there was even one idea I heard over the radio during the week is just say it's a, a Collingwood-Richmond game, let's use a season opener. That could be viewed as a home game for both teams because neither team are going to get the, the crowd advantage. So that could count as a home game, even though only one team can be at home. So that means they could go to Perth twice and Adelaide twice or, or whatever the view is, which I thought was a really good 
thing by the Victorian clubs um, to sort of be accommodating because it's it's going to be tough for the WA and uh, WA and South Australian sides particularly as they've got to stay in the Gold Coast for a few weeks. Uh, the WA tra- sides can train in um, WA, but the South Australian players can't. So that that adds a different element to the competition. Oh, 100%. But the good news for football fans is that it will be the regular four-week Toyota AFL final series, which I think is brilliant just to see a aspect of normality in this very unnormal competition. Yeah, when I saw that, I was, I was pretty relieved, actually. I think no changes to, to finals is, is probably one of the best decisions they've made, I think. Having just a bit of normality to the season and you still have the best teams play off in the end with our final series. Our final series has worked for many years and I think it really nuts out who, who are the best and, and who, are, who are just there to make up the numbers. So we'll find, I, I think everyone will find that that's, that's the best way to go forward with, with the final series. Question without notice. Did the, AF, yep. did the AFL miss out on an opportunity to do a wild card round this year? So do 7v10 and 8v9 as a sort of a fifth week of the finals in the first week. Did they miss that opportunity? Uh, if you're going to trial it one year, was this the year to do it? I mean, yes. If this would be the year to do it, if if, if I'm answering that part of the question first, if you were to do it any year, obviously a, a stop-start year is probably the best way to trial it and see how it goes. But as people will come to know on the podcast, I'm a bit of a traditionalist, so I do do, do prefer just if you make it, you make it. If you don't, you don't just have the top eight and, and leave our finals system the way it is. But if I was just answering that question, this would have been the year if they wanted to try it. But I'm on the side of just just leave it how it is. What about yourself? Are you uh, um, on that sort of bandwagon? I wouldn't have um, mind to see it. So just to provide a bit of context around that. So last year, that would have been Western Bulldogs versus Port Adelaide and Essendon, Essendon v Hawthorne in a wild card round. I, I'm i actually for a bit of wild card. I think being a side that I know it, it's having been a supporter that supported the side that has finished ninth, it sucks. Um, I know you're then going to say you could still feel finish 11th, but I just feel like it would have been nice just to trial it. Um, it's just a year of, let's give it a shot. We're playing less games any, anyway. Why can't we squeeze a, cu- a couple more in? Um, but I can't hold anything against the AFL for not doing it. It sort of would have been great to see it, but I'm not upset for it not to happen. Excuse me, not to happen. Yeah, there's been a lot of things that they've had to deal with. So I think an extra one maybe maybe was just too many for them to uh, cope with with this strange stop start season. I think that's why I reckon they wouldn't have wouldn't have done it. Uh, um, if Eddie Maguire 
Maguire's opinion is to occur. He um, said on Triple M earlier today that he wouldn't be surprised if the grand final could be a twilight or a night game. What's your opinion on that, Jake? Another question without notice here. Jeez, you're just throwing them left, right and centre today. Um, I think, again, I'd almost go with my, my same type of opinion there. It, it, would, it would be good to see it. I'm not for it. I'm definitely for the, uh, the 2.30 on the last Saturday in September, but obviously that's not going to happen. It's not going to be September. But uh, I think having – it would be a year to trial it. But in my opinion, I would want to keep it, keep it the same at 2.30. It's not doing any harm. If, if it continues like this, there's not going to be anyone there anyway. So I don't think changing it will matter all that much. There's not going to be as much planning needed, obviously, for before and after. And, and also it gives the, uh, sounds a bit bad, but it also gives the winning team a bit of time to uh, get ready to go out after they've, they've won the grand final at, say, 5.30, 6 o'clock, and then they can go out and have a good night. If they have it, have it at 5.30 or 6, I'm sure they'd still have a big night, but uh, they couldn't start it as early. So I think 2.30 is... 2.30 is uh, my opinion on the uh, grand final grand final discussion there. Yeah. Um, it's, it, I think it would be a good thing to do because um, it's likely... Like, I can't get my words out today. It's um, likely that it's restrictions can, could still be around then. So I think a night game where... It's in a prime time slot. It might just be a little bit more attractive. Attractive. I I am a hundred percent for a nighttime grand final. I think when you what I know people always say it, when you look at the uh, Super Bowl, you get such a different view of the game. The the halftime entertainment looks better. It all looks better. I'm for it, but um, would love to see trial. And once again, like with the wild card. I think this, if you're ever going to try it, this is the year to do it. And um, it's a shame that they didn't. Uh, it's, a, it's a shame they didn't do the World Cup, but there's still every chance that the grand final, if Eddie Maguire's opinion is to be believed, that it will be a nighttime grand final. Yeah, we'll just, just have to wait and see, I guess. Just It, it might come around, but uh, it'll be made at a later date, I'm sure, by, by Gill and all that. Just yeah. um, running through some of the, just a couple of last minute um, changes that have been made for when he returns. So there's going to be uh, extended quarter time, three quarter time breaks, obviously to get the players a bit more ready. Uh, there's going to be social distancing on the bench, funnily enough, 1.5 metres sitting on the bench. Uh, only six coaches allowed in the coaches' boxes. So that's going to reduce the amount of uh, coaches and play and players restricted being able to be in the box. Uh, max 26 staff limit on game day, so that reduces everything again. Extra 15 seconds after each goal, so the runners and the uh, the trainers ball can get retrievers. out to the play. Yeah, ball retrievers can get can get out to the players for giving them water, giving them stuff to. Maybe they'll have hand sanitizer in there if there's enough to uh, deal around. 
non-competing players are actually not going to be allowed to attend the games so they're going to have to watch it in the comfort of their own home so they usually sit up in the uh in the in the crowd and they find a few seats for them but they're not going to be able to do that anymore and obviously we saw this in round one but there's going to be social distancing when the winning team sings their song so we saw that a bit after round one that was a bit funny but it's probably probably a good way to do it but a bit strange when you think they're going to be tackling and things during the game but you know we've got to got to tick the boxes and do the right things i guess so that's probably a good one to have on there anyway and i believe also some our families are also allowed to um go to the game i think that's more for the debutant players which i think is a brilliant touch by uh, the afl to allow that because if i was making my debut for a footy club i'd love to have my family there and i think it's great that these players aren't losing that opportunity with their family. Yeah, for sure. I saw, yeah, and we saw that actually a bit in round one. I think there was maybe four or five players that got to have their families just sitting up in the uh, the top echelon of the the stadiums around Australia watching their their son play. So, yeah, it's a good initiative by the AFL, I think, with uh, with doing that. And changing lanes once again to Formula One. Um, just a quick recap with the big news last week of Carlos Sainz signing with Ferrari after Sebastian Vettel um, announced he would leave the team at the end of the year and Daniel Ricciardo moving from, from Renault to McLaren for next year. So a lot of driver movement happening, but I thought I'd just do a quick rundown on what I think next year's grid will look like. I have filled 18 of the 20 seats. I've left two seats vacant because they're um, two of the, I don't mean to be rude, but less competitive sides. And one of them is a junior team. So I think next year, Mercedes will keep Lewis Hamilton, but they'll change it up with his co-driver and bring in George Russell. I think George Russell was hugely impressive in his first year as Williams, despite not scoring a point and normally being one of the last two cars to finish the track, uh, finish the race. Um, but he's a superb talent. He was in a, a car that when a car could be going 200 kilometres an hour, he would be going 500 kilometres in reverse. It was that Williams car was deplorable. Um, I don't see a change at Red Bull. I see Max Verstappen and Alex Albon. And Ferrari, as we know, has got Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz as two. McLaren, who will have a Mercedes-powered unit next year, which will be a huge power boost, is Daniel Ricciardo and Lando Norris, which has also been announced. Um, going to the Renault team, where, uh, where Daniel Ricciardo is leaving, I have the two-time world champion, Fernando Alonso, returning to the team where he won his two championships, which, which I think is actually a really nice romantic bit to see him finish the career in the team where he won his first two championships. And obviously, he'd be partnering Esteban Ocon. Interesting enough, the reason why I don't have him replacing Bottas at Mercedes is because he's now, even though he's been a Mercedes driver the entire career through their junior program, he can't go back to Mercedes in, in a two, for two years. 
for 2020 and 2021 with the contract that he signed with Renault. For these two years, he's an exclusively a Renault driver, even though his management team is Mercedes. It's a very complicated and confusing bit, but they're different parent companies. It's it's a huge political um, situation, which I which makes sense to me, but it's very confusing. At Aston Martin, or as they're known this year, Racing Point, I have Lance Stroll driving for the team as his dad is the owner. But the one thing that I see happening, which is a bit odd, and it can only happen if Lawrence Stroll purchases Sergio Perez's contract, is I see Perez leaving the team. Sort of pushed out, it would be, I don't, he's a talented driver, he would be a little bit pushed. But for Lawrence Stroll to purchase his contract and let him go to a different team, it would be a huge investment for the team to pay a driver a whole year's salary not to race for the team. But I think Aston Martin is the only team on the grid, apart from Mercedes, who could land and could do with Sebastian Vettel. I, I kind of like that actually. I think that's yeah. I think that's really good. I don't mind that. I don't mind that uh, decision by uh, Lawrence if he was to purchase Perez's contract. I think that might be a good move going forward for for them and for, for Vettel to keep going and be that yeah, number I, one driver that he, that he wants to be. And I think Vettel needs to return to a British team, just a British Formula One team that they're just structured a little bit more structurally, whereas. Ferrari, as everyone knows, they're a little bit flamboyant and have a bit more of a, a different culture to the British teams. And I think it would actually be a really good fit for him. Um, and I think he'd look great in the Aston Martin. I don't know what their car design or co- uh, colours would be, but I assume Aston Martin Racing Green would be one of them. And I, th- I just think that would look beautiful. But I actually think if Perez leaves, he becomes the most marketable driver for the Haas team. Haas team being the American team and Sergio Perez being the Mexican driver. I see that as a match made in heaven. I can't think of a, for any team, a team that needs Sergio Perez and the team that he could fit perfectly. And I think that would be brilliant. And partnering Sergio Perez is Valtteri Bottas. I was wondering where you were going to put this. Put him. Yeah. I was waiting for it. I was waiting for it. I know you're okay. a bit of a Bottas fan. It is yeah, I like, a, I, yeah, I like Bottas. It is going to be a backward step for Bottas. And I just, I feel for him in a way because the only reason why I'm making that change at Mercedes and bringing George Russell up is George Russell needs a step up and he can only really go to a Mercedes team. So that is or a Mercedes-powered team. McLaren, he can't go to. He can yeah. only go to Aston Martin if Perez's contract is bought out. And I, the only reason why I see that happening is if they're bringing in a Sebastian Vettel or even a Nico Hulkenberg. But I don't see that oh, happening. Yeah. Williams, I don't think you're going to want to spend your first three years at Williams. Credit, I, I don't mean to be too harsh on Williams, but they need to promote him. And it would actually be the perfect time to promote Russell because 
It's a few years before the regulation. It'll be a year before the regulation change. Lewis Hamilton would be in the end of his career. And Mercedes will want to get their new big driver ready for when Lewis Hamilton does move. And then when Hamilton does move, I would assume Ocon would fill the seat. I think it's it's a bit of future planning and ensuring that um, Mercedes does have two top-line drivers or a top-line world championship-winning quality driver in the wings. And Mercedes saw what happened last year with Charles Leclerc and Ferrari. It's a very smart decision to do. So that's yeah. why I've got Russell there and why I've had to move Bottas out. Um, it would actually be a good fit for Bottas. I think it would be a good team. I think Haas at the moment just needs two drivers who are got a bit of quite a bit of quality to them. These two fit that um, vision. Um, and Haas do need to change their drivers. I was amazed that they kept both their drivers this year, um, particularly Roman Grosjean. I thought Grosjean's Formula One days were done. He hasn't looked good at the on track. And there have been a lot of clashes with him and the team and his teammate, um, Kevin Magnussen. I think Magnussen needs to have a good year this year. If he has a good year, I think he'll stay. But he, if he has a year like last year, he will not be at Haas next year. Then we go to Alfa Romeo. And I think almost certainly... We're going to see Mick Schumacher make his Formula One debut next year with the team. Taking the other car seat, I think it'll either be Kevin Magnussen or Antonio Giovinazzi. One of those two drivers will fill that seat. I'm probably leaning at this point in time towards Kevin Magnussen. He's just... Giovinazzi didn't impress me last year. and He just seemed a bit stale. And I think Magnussen could do with a refreshed environment. So that's my grid. We will, oh, sorry. I almost forgot two teams. That leaves Williams and Alpha Tori. So Williams, I think Nicholas Latifi will remain at the team. And at Alpha Tori, Alpha Tori will keep Pierre Gasly. I think Danielle Kibiak has had his time and will lead the Red Bull program. I haven't named a driver for those two teams yet. Both teams, particularly Alfa Tori, normally have a young driver. And I just see that happening again. I want to see what happens in the Formula 2 season before making my mind up there. We will publish... We did have a question. Yep, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Did have a question just before you just just before you uh, can promote your uh, list there. Um, I noticed you left you left out the he's he's a bit seasoned at the he's a bit seasoned now he's a bit older than most most of the drivers. But do you see Kimi Raikkonen driving at all next year? That's a good point. I should have mentioned that I see him retiring from the sport. Um, yeah. Okay. Gotcha. I think he's at that time um, both professionally and probably personally that he's probably ready to spend more time with the family. Um, and he's had a brilliant career. He's a, was the 2000 world champion. He's raced 
at Ferrari in two different stints. He's raced at Renault, he's raced at McLaren, and he's raced at Sauber or Alfa Romeo, as they know now, in two different stints. This was really a bookend, this two-year deal with Alfa Romeo, and that door will close. It's going to be sad to see him go, but I think his time on the grid is numbered, and I think he will retire from the sport. Yeah, that, that's fair enough. I, I think, yeah, he has, has, a, has had a good career, and, and going out after last year will be, will be good for him, I think. And we will publish this list on our social media uh, channels just so you can see it because I know here, um, visualising it is a lot easier than hearing it. So just before we finish up today, we're just going to go over our top 10s from last week where we're going to talk about the top 10 plays from 1990 onwards that we saw for our own footy teams. Myself being a Melbourne supporter and Jake being a Geelong supporter, we've both had completely different fortunes in our time of being a supporter. And we're going to start off with Jake's first few players. Yeah, so I thought, I thought actually we would uh, we'd go, go from our honourable mentions and go all the way up to one. So going on, going on that, just wanted, to, just wanted to say that these are the players that, that we preferred and we, we enjoyed watching play and, and all that. It's not necessarily who's the best of these last 30 years. It's just who we enjoyed watching as, as players and who gave us joy when, when we were watching games. So starting with my honourable mentions, I have the Norm Smith medalist and three-time Premiership player Steve Johnston in my in my honourable mentions kicked over 450 goals for Geelong, magnificent player. Uh, another, actually, another another Norm Smith medal. Geez, I'm really dissing the Norm Smith medalists here. Uh, Paul Chapman, another three-time Premiership player, 250 games plus for Geelong, also 350 plus goals. Another magnificent player, played a bit up forward and a bit uh, in the middle during that middle period of the career middle period of his career when Geelong were on top uh, and another player that I really enjoy watching nowadays is actually Mitch Duncan he's kind of that sits back and um, sits behind the likes of Selwood and Dangerfield and and Ablett as well to an extent you got those big names in front of him but he still still does the job every week gets his 25 plus kicks a couple of goals and I just really enjoy watching him play and he's probably probably my favourite player playing for Geelong at the moment. So they're my honourable mentions to start off my list. I'll, I'll hand over to Matt to give, to give his honourable mentions for Melbourne. Before I do my honourable mentions, I'm just going to let you know of a player who I disqualified from my list. Now, I have no, I've included other players who have changed clubs during their time, but ultimately they were still remembered as a Melbourne player. And the player that I've disqualified is a player who, for a few years, was the sole reason why any Melbourne supporter would go to a game. Because he provided that much joy in a time where there was no joy. And that player is Jeremy Howe. Um, for those, he's a phenomenal marking player. And he just created excitement. Every time that the ball went near him, you felt something was happening. Um, yeah, so I 
decided not to add him to my list because he spent so much time at another team and really has ingrained himself in that club. But if he hadn't, if he had no more games after he left Melbourne, he would have been number four on my list, given that for a while he was the only reason why Melbourne supporters could actually watch a game. Um, but my honourable mention, and he's a phenomenal footballer, and even at Collingwood, I still love to watch him. But moving on to my honourable mentions is our Brownlow medalist, Jim Steins, who not only was a superb footballer to watch, but he actually saved the football club from dying. He started the rebuild. He achieved so much and... It was a tragic shame that, unfortunately, he passed away with cancer and it was a tough one for all Melbourne supporters. I remember going to a family day and in 2008 when he had just become president and even with all the kids, he, he, he said, I'm going to make this club better. I'm going to help it. And, guys, yes, times are tough now, but they will get better. So... He is someone that I regard very highly, but also one of his best mates, Gary Lyon. Another, another a player that I didn't see much, but looking back at him, phenomenal player to watch and just someone who um, has really kept the club going. And then there's another player from that sort of mid-2000s period that really provided a lot of joy Melbourne supporters when there wasn't many joyful times. He's now an assistant coach at, I believe, Hawthorne. He's at Cameron Brooks. Um, so my list, I've just done the players that gave me the most joy as a supporter. So I'm going to, before I hand back over to Jake, I'm just going to do my number 10, 8 and 9 players. And number 10 is our current vice-captain, Jack Viney. Love the father-son connection to the club. And... Just love the way that he goes about his football. Um, tough, brutal, one of the toughest players in the AFL, consistently viewed as that by all in the media. At number nine, the flash, Aaron Davey. Nothing better than see Aaron Davey run. Was one of the best joys of anything in the AFL, in, as a Melbourne supporter, his goals and whatnot were brilliant and also for his work with other Indigenous players that we had at the club was superb. I remember he brought um, to a photo signing at Chadston, he brought Osden Wanamiri after he just debuted or and played a few games, including that brilliant four-goal effort against Fremantle where we came back from over 50 points to the signing just to purely to assist him in meeting more fans and everything. It was a huge eye-opener. At number eight, the first number I ever got on the back of my back was a 22. For Shane Lowe-Woden, the Brownlow medalist. Superb player. Also the first uh, footy card I ever got was Shane Lowe-Woden. Um, 22 was a definitely number in the early, early 2000s where most Melbourne supporters had on their back and a superb footballer to watch. Jake, what are your first five players on your list? Uh, so from going 10 to 6, so number 10 is another current day player. So it's, my number 10 is Patrick Dangerfield. It speaks for, speaks for itself. It's 
just under 250 games, 250 goals. Magnificent play to watch in and under. Gets the ball, puts the team on his back and, and gets the job done. He's, he's been magnificent since he's come over from Adelaide and um, really is a great player to watch. And I hope we can, can, get, in that, can get him that first flag. It'll be, it'll be really good for him and we would really um, finish his career with, with some success. I think that would be really good for him. Um, number nine, next I've gone with our, our big tall forward we've had since 2007, picked up luckily at, at number 40 due to the father's son, <laughs> Tom Hawkins. He's, he's been a, he's take, he took a while to develop in those first few years. I uh, got, got a flag in 2009 and then he really, he really came out of his shell in the uh, 2011 grand final when he, took to um, Sam Reid, I, be, I, I believe it was. And in that last quarter, took some fantastic contested marks that really, that really got us going in that, in that last quarter. And in the end, got us, got us that win, gave us the momentum to, to finish off the game. He's been a magnificent forward. So I had to, had to have Tommy, Tommy Haw- Tom, Tom Hawkins in that, in that list. Um, my number eight, actually, a very, very underrated player of the last... 20 years, I would say, very underrated defender is Corey Enright, uh, the game's record holder down at Geelong. Not a lot of players would, uh, not a lot of people, I should say, would would know much about Corey Enright. He, he, he's very much under the radar, doesn't do too much media stuff. He's now down at, down at Geelong. Funnily enough, as the forwards coach, I should say, which is kind of fun. But um, I think over 300 games, three premierships, all Australians, and also, and winning best and fairest as well, with the likes of Gary Ablett and Joel Selwood running around to to have a to have a season that's just as good as them is is magnificent. Uh, next, at my number seven spot, I have uh, Captain Courageous, as I like to call him, Joel Selwood. I had to have him in here. He's ever since coming in and debuting straight away in two thousand and seven. He's pretty much played almost every single game. Since that period, he's just just shy of three hundred games, and I can't say can't can't like this bloke enough. He really the amount of concussions this guy's had, the amount of tape that he's had around his head. He really leads from the front, and I love watching love watching him play. He's also a great in and under player for the Cats, and I think going to be one of the all time greats. And we'll probably end up going past Corey Enright, I think, for the uh, games record holder down at Geelong in the in the near future i think and just going to my number six just before i change back over to matt is actually a past player uh actually gary hocking gary hocking the uh the famous man who changed his name to whiskers for a week which is kind of funny with the uh the brand the cat food brand which is kind of funny um yeah he i was watching a couple of old geelong grand finals even though even though we even though we lost them, but he was such a silky player. He was one of those players that just went up to the ball and just picked it up one go every single time. He never fumbled, went in hard. Uh, I, I wish I got to watch more of him play. He uh, unfortunately retired in an uh, unfortunate game where Darren Milburn got uh, Stephen Silvani in the back of the head and we lost by like 70 points, but... He he was a magnificent player, and I wish wish he got to experience a premiership down at Geelong. But he was a one for the ages that not many people would talk about these days. So I'll, I'll throw back throw back over to Matt for for number seven. 
and uh, I'll let him go for a little bit. So I'm going to go up to my number four player and then we'll, once we get to the top three, we will go side by side. So in the early 2000s, there was a, there was a ring around the MCG whenever this man got the ball. It was Adam Muse, also now an assistant coach at Hawthorne. Adam Muse was just a brilliant player to watch and a player that I think any Melbourne supporter would love. And I think particularly from like 2002 onwards, if you looked at numbers on the back of jumpers, it was either a 13, an 18, a 24, or a number nine that was on the back of every single kid's jumper. I think that says so much about um, his ability and his admiration from young football followers. I just mentioned the number 24, and it's because of Russell Robertson, because of his marking ability, a bit like actually Jeremy Howe, in fact. Um, But no matter what uh, uh, Robbo did, it just created excitement. And a bit of a memory from uh, the 2018 semi-final against Hawthorne, which Melbourne won, was I was lining up like most Melbourne supporters do in the members. But I got there at about one in the afternoon and about at about three o'clock in the afternoon, Robbo comes in and gives a few Melbourne supporters a cup of coffee and he starts to get out his guitar and play music with us and sing um, the brilliant song, It's a Grand Old Flag. Just that ability to give back to the Melbourne supporters is a huge admiration for the bloke. And then there's another one of our captains, um, a captain that left our club several years too early, James McDonald. Um, I've never seen a player work so hard and to always strive for the best results while having a brilliant, brilliant sportsmanship. I, I think he's probably one of the most respected ever players to play for the footy club. And I believe, going off my memory, he was a rookie-listed player showing the amount of work or he was a high draft pick that he did to get onto the senior list. And then in my number four position, before I hand back over to Jake, another number I mentioned, number 18, Brad Green. The day Brad Green retired, I I actually remember crying as he walked off, as he was chaired off the ground to a, to a, Unfortunately for him, it was a Sunday twilight fixture at the MCG where the Adelaide Crows thumped us. A brilliant player, Brad Green. Brilliant mark. Brilliant kick. uh, And a superb captain of the football club. So, Jake, who are your number five and number four players? So, with my number five, I've still gone. I've gone the the Buddha hocking era, a bit, probably a bit earlier than that. I've gone with Paul Couch, a very underrated Geelong midfielder back in the day, wore number seven. Was, uh, did, all, did all the hard work, I would say, in the, in the midfield and delivered the ball to the likes of uh, Billy Brownless and, uh, and Gaz as well. He, he was on the end of a lot of, on the, on the kicking end of uh, a lot of marks that went to those, to those forwards. And he was a mag- magnificent Geelong player. Won the uh, 1989 Brownlow, 
three-time best and fairest, two-time All-Australian. He's in our team of the century and doesn't get the recognition that I think he deserves from from a lot from a lot of from a lot of people. And I think hopefully this will give uh, people which will look at uh, his career and how he how he played back in the day. So I hope people can take a look and see the greatness that he showed. Uh, number four, so, sort of moving past that past that era and into the into the next, we have one of the, in my opinion, and hopefully a lot of people's opinion, one of the top three fullbacks of all time, and uh, that's that's none other than Matthew Scarlett Scarlo. Played two hundred and eighty-four games. Again, like Corey Enright, very very quiet when it comes to the the media and, and all that, doing interviews and whatnot. But he always went about his business and he was very much for the team. As I said, one of the three premierships, six-time All-Australian, probably some in the back pocket, but mostly in the, in the full back. He won a, won a best and fairest in 2003 and he's in the, in the Hall of Fame and currently uh, a coach down at Geelong, an assistant coach uh, dealing with the backs. So... Um, this 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 man was didn't get the recognition I think he should have got. Everyone likes to talk about the midfielders and and the forwards kicking goals and the midfielders racking up possessions and defenders don't get as much accolades as as I think they should. So moving in now we have our have our top top three. As Matt said, we're going to go one for one here just to reveal our top three. And uh, with Matt's number three, I believe you have a bit of a modern-day player, Matt. So do you want to tell us a bit about him? Yeah. Um, this is a player who... who I'm trying to describe... I can't think of a what reason to justify why I put him above some of the other players. But he's a player who, to me, has captured the Melbourne supporters in the last few years. And... Particularly last year when things were bad, he had really recaptured the imagination of Melbourne supporters, accepted accountability. He accepted that things weren't wrong. And I'm talking about the captain, Max Gorn. Not many people can have an impact like he has in a few years of stepping up from being a handy backup ruckman on the list to being one of the two best Ruckmans in the competition in a space of a few years and dominate that Max Gorn. Absolutely brilliant. Um, I, I actually can't think of a Melbourne team without him now. He's, he's the kid that has filled the shoes of David Neitz. Every kid, as I've said a bit about numbers earlier, the number nine was the most popular number for me as a child for Melbourne supporters and he has captured that now for all future young Melbourne supporters. The number 11 is the must-have number. And Jake, I, you said haven't mentioned two names yet, and I hope they feature in the next couple, but you've got a father and a son that you haven't mentioned. Are they coming up? Because it's a very t- if they do, you've got a tough, tough decision to make here. Yes, no, you, you are you are correct. That they do feature. They do feature now. They first. I'm going to go with number three, and that's 
the father, Gary Ablett Senior. What what more can I say about him? Yeah, I wish I got to watch. I wish I got to watch more of him play. Just shy of 250 games, kicked over a thousand goals, four goals a game, 4.2 goals a game. Like that's that's unheard of these days. He's AFL Team of the Century, won the Coleman Medal three times, four All Australians. I don't want to go through too much of his stats, but he, his nickname was God for a reason. He was moved moved to the forward line. Didn't play his whole career as a full forward. Played on the half forward flank for for the majority of it. It was just the later years that he that went to that he went to full forward. But man, I would have loved to have would have loved to have gone to one of his games where he where he kicks ten and oh, you just you just don't see it these days. There's three years where he kicked over 120 goals and man, he was such a such a great player and definitely in the top players of all time. And I bet you uh, the uh, Hawthorne team. Back in 1982, he's very much regretting getting rid of Gary Ablett in uh, 1982 and he ended up heading down to the Cattery where he played 240 games. So had to have, had to have Gaz Senior there in, in, the, in the top three. I did, I've seen a few, bit of his highlights and definitely a well-deserving member of, of my top three. Now, over to your number two, Matt. Bit of a... Bit of a legend down at the Melbourne Football Club for you, yeah. I think. So, um, for me, there was a bit of a gap between two and three. And no doubt, I'm sure Max Gorn's going to close that gap over the next few years. But my top two players are the first two players I think of when I think of the Melbourne Footy Club. And I really struggled to, set, to decide who would go where. And I have decided that in number two, I'm actually going to go to the man that wore the number two, Nathan Jones. It's fair to say since about 2007, it's been a pretty tough time to be a Melbourne supporter. Um, To put that in perspective, for pretty much my entire schooling after year four, I was supporting a side that was in the bottom four for almost every single year. So, but in that time, we had a captain for a few, for about four or five years that just, and even when he wasn't captain, he wore his heart on the on his sleeve. He fought hard every single minute of every single game. If he he put him so much effort every single time he played. He is a multiple best and fairest winner at the Melbourne Football Club. Um, I think four-time Norm Smith, uh, not Norm Smith, another Melbourne legend, but um, Keith Bluey Truscott medal three times uh, in 2013, 2012 and 2014. He was captain from 2014 onwards. And he's one of very few players to be nominated for a NAB AFL Rising Star Award in two different years. He was nominated in both 2006 and both, and again in 2007, because he had not met the quota that ruled you out for the next year. So a bit of a very talented and very special Melbourne player. 
who has so far played 286 games. He's only 14 away from becoming what I believe is this only the second player to ever play 300 games for the Melbourne Footy Gap Club. Um, in the history of the team. Um, yes, he's already second on the list. He He's overtaken a huge amount of um, Melbourne legends and is 20 away from equaling David Neitz in most games played. Now, Jake, did you go with the Sun in two or did he go with someone else in the number two position for Geelong? Now, we'll rehash that. This, these lists are players that we loved watching. So essentially, this is my second favourite player to watch. So this might not be everyone's choice as your number two. It sounds like you're going with a it, controversial one here. Controversial. The, my second favourite ever Geelong player is Gary Abla Jr. Going a bit controversial here. I mean, every Geelong, every Geelong person would have them as their as their number one or, or their second one as well. With obviously with uh, his father as well. But I got him got him slotted in at number two. What's what's there? What's there to say about him? He, he joined Geelong back in uh, two thousand and two under the father son. He was a back then he had hair. <laughs> Funnily enough, and saw what his dad had and said, no, I might get rid of that. But he's played about 240 games for Geelong with a stint in the middle down at the Gold Coast. But he's won two flags, a Brownlow, five-time MVP, eight-time All-Australian, a few of those with the Gold Coast Suns, a two-time best and fairest down at Geelong, and so many more awards. He's kicked 440 goals in his career and he's such a magnificent player. He's, he's strong, he's strong, strong in the clinches, strong hips. No one can tackle him. He's, he's such a great player. I'm so glad. I did have a feeling when he left back in 2010 after that, after that disappointing season and he left for the Gold Coast that I, I, I had a feeling that he, he would be back and, I'm very glad that he's he's chosen to to finish off his career down at Geelong and has and hasn't looked out out of sorts really. I think yeah his disposals are, are a bit more down than as they would back in the day, but still getting 21 as a 21 22 disposals a high half forward and kicking arguably a goal a game is is, is still very good for a 36 year old footballer. So I had 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 to have. Had to have Gaz in at number two. So finishing off, finishing off our lists, Matt, your favourite player for um, the Melbourne so, Club. So as I said earlier, I hummed and hard over this between Nathan Jones and this man, but it's the man that sits above um, Nathan, uh, Nathan Jones for most games played at the Melbourne Football Club, David Neitz, who has played 300 and six games, 20 more than uh, Nathan Jones. Oh, what can you say about David Neitz? Superb, brilliant, um, perfection. Arguably the AFL's best ever swingman. 
Now, people are probably going to yell at me for this, but he is one player that could play both ends of the ground in the same game and be superb at both. Uh, most games ever captain for Melbourne, um, was captain from 2000 to 2008. He's Melbourne's only Coleman medalist, winning the Coleman medal in 2002 with 82 goals. Um, I can't think of a single bad thing to say about him. He's an All-Australian. He's a Rising Star nominee. He's ticked almost every single box there is to tick. Um, he led Melbourne's goal kicking seven times. He is both a Melbourne and AFL Hall of Fame member. Um, I can't fault him. He's like Nathan Jones and as a supporter, perfection. And after Shane were Woden leaving to go to Collingwood, I was very quick to get a number nine on the back of my jumper. Now, Jake, I know this player that you're, you've picked at number one, and I can genuinely say, have, having known you for the amount of time I do, I can't think of a single athlete in any sport that you like more than this player. Mitchell Johnson has got very close, but even Mitchell <laughs> Johnson can't even take your number one spot. So tell me about your man. Yes, yes, my man. Yes, that's it, Matt. I called him that for a very, very long time. Since since 2002 when he first debuted, back in the year where uh, Ablett debuted as well, so a good recruiting, recruiting year for Geelong. But the man that I'm speaking of is... My man, Jimmy Bartell. I love, love watching this man play football. Played over 300 games for, played 300 games for, Cat, for the Cats. He wasn't always the most flashiest player. One of the, as, as commentators have said, one of the, one of the best over, overhead marks as a, as, as a midfielder for the time that he played in. Great kick in front of a goal. Would, uh, would put your life on the line to see him kick in front of goal. No, he'd kick it. He's Brownlow medalist, Norm Smith medalist, three-time premiership player. Surprisingly, only a two-time All-Australian. I feel like that's a little unrewarded there, but that's, yeah, only a two-time. usually unders. Yeah, that's it. I was very surprised when I saw that. But yeah, he's in that, in that category of the, uh, the Brownlow, the Norm Smith and the premierships. There's only five players who have done it and he, he is one of them. And I, I can't, can't express my love enough for the for the, for for this player. He's he's such such a magnificent guy to watch. Sat back in the uh, in the dynasty and 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 let the uh, the likes of the Gabs have the limelight, and he did all the dirty work. And couldn't ha- couldn't think of a better player to have as as my number one. Where's my favourite number number three and We'll uh, have that. We'll continue to have that on my back for, for for years to come, and hopefully one day, actually, I get to meet him as well. That'll be that'll be a very. It's up. It's high on high on my bucket list, I would say. So, Jimmy Bartel is my number one and 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 my favorite, my favorite ever Geelong player to watch, and I'm very glad to have him there. And that concludes our podcast for another week. 
please like our social media channels on both Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And of course, please keep listening to our podcast on your chosen platform. Thank you for listening once again. Thank you.